um, a blessing. And this afternoon we turn to Psalm 106, Psalm 106. We were looking at this psalm some weeks ago and we saw how that this psalm concerns God's faithfulness despite his people's unfaithfulness. And we, we saw how that God, at every step of the way, despite Israel's rebellion against him, yet he saves them. And we're going to pick up from verse 16. We're going to read verses 16 through 22 this afternoon. When men in the camp were jealous of Moses and Aaron, the Holy One of the Lord, the earth opened and swallowed up Dathan and covered the company of Abiram. Fire also broke out in their company. The flame burned up the wicked. They made a calf in Horeb and worshipped a metal image. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt, wondrous works in the land of Ham, and awesome deeds by the Red Sea. So we have here in verses 16 through 18 to begin with, a third instance of Israel's rebellion against God. You read the previous verses and you see the ways in which they rebelled against God. And the psalmist here states in verses 16 through 18, When men in the camp were jealous of Moses and Aaron, the Holy One of the Lord, the earth opened and swallowed up Dathan and covered the company of Abiram, Fire also broke out in their company. The flame burned up the wicked. And the incident that's being alluded to here is found in Numbers chapter 16. What is typically referred to as the rebellion of Korah. You know the sons of Korah. Uh, we are told how in verses 1 through 5, Numbers chapter 16, Korah, the son of Izar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, and Dathan and Abiram, the son of Eliab, and on the son of Peleth, sons of Reuben, took men. Right away we smell trouble. These men were up to no good. <clears throat> they were leading a delegation to Moses and Aaron because they were disgruntled with their leadership. But they did, the way they went about it, they went about it in an underhand manner. And this kind of underhand scheming that occurred back then did not end with those dissidents. Such scheming very much happens in many a church today. It often begins with a person or persons of influence in a church, in a congregation, who can sway and garner others to feed into their disgruntlement over some issue. For example, their dissatisfaction with some decision taken by leadership, their annoyance at the fact that things in the fellowship are not going according to their fancy, according to their wishes. Sometimes the preacher is not preaching what they would like to hear. 
The annoyance of the fact that things in the fellowship are not going according to their fancy, according to their wishes. And here in Numbers chapter 16 and verse 1, we find these four men, four men of influence in the congregation of Israel, Korah, Dathan, Abiram, and On, taking men. And what did they do? Verse 2, they rose up before Moses with a number of the people of Israel. And the language that's used here smacks of mutiny. It smacks of outright resistance and rebellion against the leadership of Moses and Aaron. As suggested by the massive number of people they took with them to confront Moses, we are told all of 250 chiefs of the congregation chosen from the assembly well-known men, it was as though they were declaring war against Moses and Aaron. In fact, note once again the language of confrontation, the language of combat, we find there in Numbers chapter 16 and verse 3. The Bible says they assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron. We would say today they ganged up against them. And what was their bone of contention They said to them, here's what they said, here's what the delegation said to Moses, addressing their concern to Moses and Aaron. They said, you have gone too far, for all in the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? When Moses heard it, He fell on his face and he said to Korah and all his company, the morning the Lord will show who is his and who is holy and will bring him near to him. The one whom he chooses, he will bring near to him. Now verse 16 of Psalm 106, our text this afternoon, leaves us in no doubt as to what was the underlying issue with this particular mob. The psalmist says there that they were jealous, they were jealous of Moses and of Aaron, the Holy One of the Lord. Their main problem was that they had a feverish craving, we would say, for power and position. No, these men were not genuinely concerned about the Lord They weren't concerned about God's glory, about God's honor. They were concerned, you see, about their own agenda. They were concerned about their own glory. That's all they were really concerned about. They did not have in view the honor and glory of God. Because if they did, if they at all had concern for the honor and glory of God, then they would have recognized that Moses and Aaron were God's appointed leaders. God had set these men over the congregation of Israel. As one writer well observes, he says this, their resistance to Moses and Aaron was a symptom of their deeper rejection of the Lord's authority over them. I think we can deduce here that sometimes, not all the times, we find disturbances Situations like this where people will challenge uh, leadership and where they will find all kinds of faults, find all kinds of problems, 
sometimes, not all the times, suggested here is the fact that the problem is a spiritual one. The heart is not right before God. What they failed to realize was that in challenging the leadership of Moses and Aaron, they were effectively showing contempt for the Lord. They were effectively rebelling against the Lord. In fact, Moses made this clear in Numbers chapter 16 and verse 11, where he said to them, Therefore, here's what Moses said to them, It is against the Lord that you and all your company have gathered together. What is Aaron that you grumble against him. In other words, we, we really are nothing, really. At the end of the day, your pick, your bone of contention is really with the Lord. And how often do we find in churches such undercurrents of unruly resistance to constituted leadership? Of those who, in promoting worldly self-seeking agenda, their worldly self-seeking Selfish agenda will foment all kinds of trouble in the church, all in an attempt to get their own way. Now, let me just say this, because sometimes a person might say, well, is there a problem at RBCL? And let me say, categorically, there's no problem. And this is not the reason for, for my preaching. Here's the point. I just, we just preach through the whole counsel of God, right? And this is a text we come to. And this is the next passage in the psalm. So, no problem. Thank the Lord. The Lord has given us, I believe, has blessed us as a church with peace. And we flourish in harmony one with another. So, what I'm saying has nothing to do with anything. <laughs> There's no problem that's hinted at that I can say that this text is directed toward. But as I'm saying, how often do we find in churches such undercurrents of unruly resistance to constituted leadership? And sometimes what creates the problem is persons have a lack of understanding. They misunderstand. In fact, they are woefully ignorant as to what the Bible teaches concerning leadership. The Word of God teaches that God has appointed in the church leaders. The Bible tells us in Ephesians chapter 4, he has given to the church pastors, teachers, evangelists. They're also, of course, we read the, the pastoral epistles, they are deacons. And these people are placed in the church so that they might give proper guidance, proper oversight to the church of God. Whenever, as believers, we do not understand that, whenever, as believers, we have a worldly view of what leadership is, if we have at the back of our minds that these people in the church, these quote-unquote leaders, these pastors, these elders, are there to really show superiority over us, then that is a faulty, worldly way of thinking. God has appointed leadership in the church, and one of the things the Word of God says, we are to respect our leaders, we ought to submit to our leaders, and we ought, we shouldn't give them that kind of resistance. Condensing the account in Numbers 16, the psalmist in verses 17 and 18 goes on to tell of the judgment of God that befell the the sons of Korah and his confederates. And how swift, how severe was this judgment? We read, the earth opened up and swallowed up Dathan, 
and covered the company of Abiram, fire also broke out in their company. The flame burned up the wicked. Numbers chapter 6, verses 33 to 35, the parallel account says this, amplifying the, the severity of their judgment, says this, So they and all that belonged to them went down alive in Sheol, and the earth closed over them, and they perished from the midst of the assembly. And all Israel who were around them fled at their cry, for they said, Lest the earth swallow us up, and fire come out from the Lord, and consumed the 250 men offering the incense. Here we see, beloved, the bitter consequence of rebellion against God. Now, you have preachers today who will use passages like these and build a doctrine. They say, touch not the Lord's anointed. Well, we're not going to do that. The most we're going to say is this. God does not take kindly to disrespect toward authority that he has established, whether in the home, in the government, or even for that matter in the church. We are to respect authority. God takes that very seriously. And here we see God bringing swift, severe judgment on these rebels who ganged up against Moses, challenging his spiritual authority and that of his brother Aaron. If you notice how Moses describes Aaron, he, Moses does not even include himself in it. He, say, he describes Aaron as what? The Holy One of the Lord. What is he saying? He's not suggesting that Aaron was inherently more holy than the rest of the congregation. And here's the point. As leaders... In the church, pastors, elders are not necessarily more holy. They are not necessarily, they are not certainly not superior to the rest of the congregation. Certainly they should be people of superior, exemplary spirituality, godliness. But here's the point. They are not there because of anything that is inherent in them in terms of superiority and excellence. God in his grace has established them, has placed them there for the leadership and direction of his church. And leaders, those of us who lead the church of God, those of us who rule in the church of God, those of us who administer in the church of God, who administrate in the church of God, the Bible says we are not to what? Be lords over God's heritage. We are among you, as Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, the elders who are what? Among you. Not above you, we are among you. But the point is, God established Moses and Aaron as leaders, and Aaron was particularly set apart by God, and that is really what it means when he says, he was the Holy One of the Lord. It simply means he was particularly, specially set apart to handle the sacrifices of God. And there in verses 17 and 18, we see that the wrath of God fell not only on the instigators of the rebels, but also on their followers. The Bible is so true, isn't it? Do not follow a multitude to do evil. They all shared alike in that awful judgment of God. 
In verses 19 to 23, we have the fourth instance of Israel's forgetfulness and their rebellion against God. We read in verses 19 through 23, they made a calf in Horeb. So the psalmist is continuing to chronicle Israel's unfaithfulness. God judges Israel for their unfaithfulness. He's giving yet another instance of Israel's unfaithfulness, their forgetfulness of God, their rebellion against God. And he says this, they made a calf in Horeb and worshipped a metal image. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt, wondrous works in the land of Ham, and awesome deeds by the Red Sea. Therefore he said he would destroy them, had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him, to turn his wrath from destroying them. God is a God of grace. He's also a God of judgment and wrath. We saw in the previous paragraph, his exercising his wrath, his justice against those who rebel against him. And in this instance, God could have what? Wiped out the entire nation. You know the account Moses had gone up to the mount to receive from God the Ten Commandments. And the Bible tells us that the people, when they saw Moses was taking a long time, they pressured Aaron, as it were. They said, listen, we don't know as for this Moses, what has become of him? And they said to him, listen, get up, make us gods so that we can worship. And of course, Aaron gave in. Aaron gave in under pressure. You know, one of the marks of good leadership, and this goes not only in the home, it goes true in government. And it even goes more true, if I can use an expression, more true in the church. That those who are in leadership ought to be people who lead and are not led. Don't allow themselves to be pressured. Don't allow themselves to be swayed by popular sentiment. That was what Aaron allowed to happen to him. He listened to the people. The people pressured him and he gave into the pressure. He gave into the temptation and he made this calf. Of course, you know the story when Moses came down, Moses saw the people all dancing, crazy before this golden calf. Aaron's explanation, he says, the people that when they saw that you did not come back, they said, oh, make us gods. So we, I collected from them their earrings and so on. I threw it in the fire and there came out this calf, golden calf. What excuse? Now, what is striking about this incident is that it clearly parallels Romans chapter 1 and verse 23, in which Paul calls attention to the ungodliness of sinful fallen men who exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Again, note verses 20, 20, 21 of our text. They exchange the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt. It seems we could say that Paul had 
this incident of the golden calf in view, in mind, when he wrote Romans chapter 1. In the history of Israel's rebellion against God, we see how further and further one can drift away from God through repeated habitual patterns of sin. Trace Israel's history, and you know this, it started with one particular sin. It moved to what? Even greater sin and greater sin and greater sin, and that's what we're having here. In the, first, in the instance we considered earlier, they were rebelling against Moses' leadership, and here what we have is clear, open, blatant idolatry, clear rejection of the living God. Sin has this way of what we might call having the multiplier effect, where sin keeps adding to sin, and the further one gets, it's the deeper one sinks into its darkness. The golden calf incident at Horeb, beloved, was cumulative, the cumulative result of their long, sustained period of sinning and rebelling against the Lord. And we see how they went from worshipping the one true holy God of the universe to worshipping the likeness of a four-footed beast that eats grass, verse 20. Paul, in tracing the history of man's declension into depravity, sinful fallen humanity into, de into depravity, shows how men, not progressively but regressively, backwardly, goes deeper and deeper in sin. Their sin involved giving honor and glory that belong to God to an idol, a nothing, a non-entity. That which was sheer emptiness. And at Horeb, the very place where God had given the law, where they would have remembered how that when God appeared there on Mount Sinai amidst the lightning, the presence, the manifest presence of God was there. And they've evidently forgot how they saw the majesty, the glory of God in the giving of the law right there at Horeb. The word of God tells us they made and worshipped. An idol. In fact, in so doing, they broke the very first two commandments. Because what does God say in his word at the commandments? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. You shall have no other gods before me. Again, why did they do this? Because in the sinfulness of their hearts and minds, they were forgetful of God. When you have time, go back over this psalm as we were saying the last time. Look at the word forget or forgot. Sin occurs, unfaithfulness to the Lord occurs when we forget who God is, when we forget what God has done, and when we forget completely his word, when we forget, when we are unmindful of his word. Note the four things they forgot as we close. Verse 21, they forgot God, their Savior. They forgot God. Their Savior. Don't you remember how he saved you by the Red Sea? Remember when Pharaoh and his hosts were coming and how the Lord gloriously delivered you? Remember what you were going through in the land of Egypt, in the land of bondage? You were crying out and God in mercy delivered you from the hand of Pharaoh? Yes, they forgot God, their Savior. We do that too, you know. Isn't it true that when you and I 
are unfaithful to the Lord, we are going contrary to the Lord. No, it's not a mistake. Sometimes we knowingly take that path. And what we are doing, we are becoming unmindful of God. We have become in that instance unmindful of God. We have forgotten the grace of God in our lives, the saving grace of God in our lives. They forgot God, their Savior. Look at, again at verse 21. They forgot God who had done great things in Egypt. And then look at verse 22. They forgot his wondrous works in the land of Ham. What, what, what Moses is doing here is using synonymous parallelism. He's really saying very much the same thing related to Egypt. They forgot what God had done, the great things he had done in Egypt. They forgot his wondrous works in the land of Ham. And then notice verse 22 again. They forgot the awesome deed by the Red Sea. All of these, beloved, all of these hinge on the first sin. They're having forgotten God. Time and again, even up to the monarchy and the period of the divided kingdom, Israel and Judah repeated this sin over and over and over again, the sin of idolatry. When the word of God is removed from our lives, when we pay little regard to the word of God, then something else takes its place. We're never neutral when it comes to the Lord. If the Lord is not first and foremost in our lives, then something else will take its place. Just as nature knows nothing of a vacuum, so it is in the spiritual realm. If God is not in one's life, if his word has no place in our minds and our hearts, we are going to serve that which is worthless and idolatrous. This ultimately becomes the charge of the prophets, particularly of Jeremiah against Israel. We hear Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah, in Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 32, lamenting, can a virgin forget her ornaments or a bride her attire? Yet my people have forgotten me days without number. The prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 17.10 says this, For you have forgotten the God of your salvation and have remembered the rock of your refuge. Therefore, though you plant pleasant plants and sow the vine branches, a stranger, he talks about how a stranger, will devour it. We have the prophet Ezekiel again, another prophet talking about Israel's unfaithfulness, their idolatrous heart, their idolatrous tendencies. Therefore, thus says the Lord, God, because you have forgotten me and cast me behind your back, you yourself must bear the consequences of your lewdness and whoring. And then, finally, Hosea 8, 14, as well as chapter 13, verse 6, for Israel has forgotten his maker and built high places. And Judah has multiplied fortified cities. So I will send a fire upon his cities, and it shall devour their strongholds. But when they had grazed, they became full, they were filled, and their heart was lifted up. Therefore, they forgot me. What's the cause of idolatry? Not only sin necessarily, but let's take warning here, prosperity. Prosperity. And we must be mindful that when we are prospering, when God is being good to us, particularly materially, those are the times we need to be careful and watch our hearts, that we do not allow these things to lead our hearts astray. So the closing question this afternoon by way of application is this. 
are we as a nation, are we as a church, and more so as are we as individual Christians guilty of forgetting God, of serving that which is not God, of being idolatrous? Have we forgotten him? Have we been unfaithful to him? Let's pray. We thank you, our Father, that you have demonstrated in your word your hatred of all that is sinful, all that runs contrary to your will. And yet we are thankful that you, notwithstanding our unfaithfulness, our rebellion against you, are a God of grace and mercy. And just as how you could have wiped out Israel, truth is, as your word tells us, it is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed. We think of our nation in rebellion against you, serving that which is not God. And yet you have been patient. We think of our individual lives, how oftentimes we are unfaithful, knowingly so, and yet in grace and mercy you bear with us. Help us, Lord, that we would take these things to heart. Give us grace and grant that we would not fall into the error of ancient Israel, that we would recognize our own vulnerability to straying and wandering. In Jesus' name we pray.